0: The biggest barrier to a better future in our city is not what most people would think. What really holds Huntsville back is our wrong concept of Jesus. The greatest danger of our church is, is not what most people would think. Rather, it would be our misguided understanding of who Jesus really is the greatest barrier for our families is not what most people would think. The greatest hindrance for our families is not the culture around us, but, but, but rather is our own concept of Jesus. What we see happening in this text is Jesus beginning to do what Jesus still does today, seeking and saving the lost by calling men and women to himself. And we can learn from this passage that Jesus calls men and women to himself today in the same way he did when when he walked on earth. And he calls people to come and see. This this phrase, come and see, it shows up twice in this passage, in verse 39 and in verse 46. And it's foundational. It's this foundational phrase that we need to, to understand as we think about how we're going to make disciples. In this passage, we see Jesus and those who have already encountered him inviting others to come and see for themselves so they have a right concept of who he really is. And through these invitations to to come and see, God is demonstrating to us that he pursues his wayward children. Children. He he initiates restoration by coming after us, the lost, regardless of our rebellion. And and God put on flesh and came down to us with a mission of grace. The writers of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record Jesus himself stating that this mission which was the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. The mission of Jesus' first coming was not one of judgment, not, not to judge the world. His mission was salvation for the world. And that's what I want to show you this morning as we unpack what it means to come and see. So the first thing, the first truth that I want to to pull out of this passage for you is that God pursues us through a variety of means, people, and calls us to come and see Jesus for who he really is. So who is this Jesus? In, in, In these 16 verses, Jesus is identified as the Lamb of God, Rabbi, which is, which is teacher. So John is writing this book. He's not writing it to a Jewish audience. He's writing it to a non-Jewish audience because he's having to describe what teacher is. Jews would have known plain well what rabbi means. He wouldn't have had to explain it. He was writing it to, to, the, to the Gentiles. So the Lamb of God, he, he's identified as, as the Lamb of God, the rabbi, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel, and the Son of Man. All of these names will, will come, uh, w- w- all of these names will, will, make, will take on a fuller meaning as we continue to work our way through the Gospel of John. And each of them reveals something of Jesus' primary mission to seek and save the lost. And Jesus uses a variety of means to call sinners to come and see. And in verse 35, we see God use, He uses spiritual leaders like John the Baptist to pursue his chosen ones. John the baptizer is modeling for us the kind of leaders we should be looking for within the church. As, as, as John is standing there with his two disciples, Jesus is walking by and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples that were there with him, John's followers, they followed, they turned, they left John and they, and they followed Jesus. Now think about this. That's the same message that he preached last week. Pastor John preached last week. It's the same thing he said the day before. Behold the Lamb of God comes to take away the sins of the world. And John is saying again, behold the Lamb of God. He he didn't even change the illustration. Like, literally, word for word, he says the same thing he said the day before. And Pastor John said last week Behold the Lamb of God. Now, listen to me. It's the only message we have. Pastors and church leaders don't need a big platform or flashy sermon illustrations. Week after week, they need to point people to behold the sacrificial Lamb who died to take away their sins. The central foundation for the church is the gospel. If we don't have the gospel, then we have really nothing at all. A church, listen to me, a church filled with good works that is without gospel is a church without the power of the Holy Spirit. It's just a civic organization like the Lions Club. We have one primary message Christ and Him crucified. Jesus was the goal of John the Baptist's ministry. So much so that when the time came and John pointed Jesus saying, behold the lamb his disciples didn't hesitate to follow Jesus why because they knew he was the only one who was able to take away their sins John couldn't do it but Jesus could remember the message that John has been preaching repent repent and turn the kingdom is here So his followers, they they clearly had, they recognized their sin and they they knew that only Jesus was the one who could take away their sins. To to this day, Jesus calls to himself, men and women, to follow him through faithful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, through pastors and and leaders. And that's not only, and and that's not the only way he pursues us. He also pursues us, as we see in this passage, through our families. One of John's disciples who had followed Jesus was Andrew. Jesus had encountered Andrew, um, had encouraged Andrew to follow him and to to stay with him. To come and see. To come and see him for who he really was. And, And now Andrew, he can't keep what he has seen to himself. He can't keep it to himself. He, he wants to share what he's encountered. And I love this. Verse 41, what does Andrew do? He's like, man, I, I have to go tell my brother. I have to go tell Simon about this. So Andrew, he runs to tell the man we know as Peter. And as I thought about this passionate brother-to-brother invitation to to come and see. It it really stirred up my affections in some pretty keen ways towards the Lord. How awesome that God uses family members to call each other to himself. Andrew says, he's saying, hey, we found the Messiah. We found him. And then he brings Simon to Jesus. What we're seeing in this situation Simon coming to Jesus because of the faithfulness of a family member, his brother Andrew, calling him to come and see. Your best and most frequent opportunities to share Christ will happen in your own home, with your family members, as you faithfully and continually call your spouse, your children, your siblings, and even your your own parents to, to come and encounter Jesus, you are establishing a household that is continually learning what it means to behold the lamb. And this doesn't mean your family will be perfect. Because we both know, everyone knows, there there is no such thing. There are no perfect homes. It doesn't even mean that every one of your loved ones will come to know Christ. But it does mean that if you have encountered Christ, your love for him will spill over into every part of your family life. You won't be able to contain yourself from the from from desperately praying and passionately calling those you love and see as you have seen him yourself. As you call lost family members to come and behold the Lamb, you you recognize that He is the only solution to their problems, to your problems, to, to my problems, to the problems in your home. And I love what John Piper says in talking about Christian parenting and just, just this call to, to shepherding your children. This is what he says. Your rebellious child's real problem is not drugs or sex or cigarettes or pornography or laziness or crime or cussing or slovenliness homosexuality, or even being in a punk rock band. I'm not even really sure how that one got in this list, but it's there. The real problem is that they don't see Jesus clearly. The best thing you can do for them is to show them Christ. It's not a simple or immediate process, but the sins in their life that distress you and destroy them will only begin to fade away when they see Jesus more like he actually is. Seeing and encountering Jesus leads to a changed heart, which leads to changed behavior. In other words, beholding the lamb becomes, it leads to becoming like the lamb, because the lamb makes us into a brand new people. And this is exactly what we see happening in this text, where Jesus comes to Simon. When Andrew brings Simon to Jesus, Jesus looks at him and essentially says, you are Simon, but I am making you Cephas. I am, I'm making, I'm calling you Peter, which means Rock. Christ giving Peter a new name signifies that, that he is giving him a new identity. An identity that Christ will, will grow into, that, that, that Christ will grow into him throughout his time. And thank goodness God is in it for the long haul. It only took 50 years to, to mature Peter and that's hope for us, right? Jesus does the same for us. He gives us a new identity as those who are in Christ. Then through, through time, he progressively transforms us into the image of Christ so that our behavior matches our identity. So we've seen Christ calling the lost to come and see through gospel-centered leaders, and through family members. And now we're going to see in this passage how, how Christ caused the loss to himself through, through, through friends. Through friends. In verse 43, we read that Philip has found, was found and, and called by Christ himself. So Christ meets him, says, come, follow me. And after he encounters Christ, he immediately runs to find Nathanael a friend, and tells him that they have found the one the Jews have been waiting for, the promised Messiah, of whom Moses and the prophets all wrote. And then Philip mentions this, that this promised one is the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Philip has encountered Jesus and recognized him for who he, who he really is, but, but Nathaniel is immediately skeptical. So where the first two disciples were honest seekers of Jesus, Nathanael was an honest skeptic. Nazareth? Nazareth? Really? The promised Messiah from the tiny village that that is never even mentioned in the Old Testament? Nathanael encourages Philip to come and see for himself over and over again, we see people having encounters with Jesus and then we see them going to others to tell them about what they've seen, what they have experienced and they call them to do the same. Really, think about this. This is the basics of evangelism and disciple making. This is the very basic of what it means to live an evangelistic life and a disciple-making life. And the early followers of Jesus were not calling others to sign up for classes. They, they weren't asking them to come to church events. They, they weren't going to their pastor saying, you should go visit my neighbor. They were simply being intentional with their various relationships and connections to tell others that the Messiah had arrived. The events of John 1, 35 through 51, they they happened over the course of at least two days. And during this time, these new followers of Christ, they intersected with one another in the normal rhythms of daily life. They walked and talked and stayed together. They spent the night with one another. They had meals together. They encountered Christ together. And just by way of application, these are some good evangelistic and disciple-making methods for us to follow. I love Tim Chester. He's a a church planter from England who's written extensively about building and what this looks like. He's got a book called A Mill with Jesus. And I think I've got some copies. If not back there in my office, I'd love to give you one if you're interested. He basically takes the book of Luke and he unpacks every evangelistic and disciple-making opportunity that he has. The vast majority of those encounters that Jesus has happens while he's having a meal with that person. So there's something significant there to take away. But this is what Tim Chester says. We can make community and mission sound like specialized activities that belong to experts. Some people have a vested interest in doing this because it makes them feel extraordinary. Or we focus on dynamic personalities who can hold an audience and lead a movement. Some push missions beyond the scope of ordinary Christians, but the Son of Man came eating and drinking. It's not complicated. True, it's not always easy. It involves people invading your space or going to places where you don't feel comfortable. But it's not complicated. If you share a meal three or four times a week and you have a passion for Jesus, then you will be building up Christian community and reaching out in mission. Bottom line is, and I am a firm believer, that evangelism disciple-making Happens best. I didn't say it was the only way. Happens best, though, in the context of relationships and the normal rhythms of life. Now let's go back to Nathaniel's encounter with Christ and see what happens. Nathanael goes to find Jesus to see for himself if he truly is the promised one that Philip had claimed that he is. And Jesus, aware of Nathanael's skeptic, skeptic, skepticism, calls out to him before he even gets there, revealing to him that he, that, that he already knew, he already knows who Nathaniel is by acknowledging him, acknowledging him as a man in whom there is no deceit. Jesus goes on to verify his identity as the Messiah through his supernatural knowledge to Nathanael being under the fig tree before Philip even called him. And so naturally, Nathanael is amazed by Jesus' knowledge and affirms that he is in fact the Messiah. And Jesus says to him, in effect, buddy, you, you had not seen nothing yet. And then he makes this statement. This is what I want us to home in on the remainder of our time this morning. He makes this statement, verse 51. It's really significant. Verse 51. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What on earth does he mean here? Well, this leads us to my final point. So two points this morning, okay? Through the gospel, Jesus meets us where we are despite our rebellion and gives us access to God. Now, of all the amazing things that can be said about this passage, about who Jesus is, here's the one thing we do not want to miss. Every other reference about the Lord in this passage has been made, about, has been made from someone else. However, this reference is from Jesus himself. Let's break this statement down um, about Jesus, about about himself, phrase by phrase. And we'll divide it into into three parts, okay? First, the Lord said, truly, truly, I say to you. 25 times in John's gospel, the Lord uses this phrase, truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus loves saying it. And in John's text, this, this isn't a Greek word. It's a Hebrew word, and it's the same word of which uh, we get the word amen from. It's the exact same word. In the Old Testament, people said amen or are truly after a declaration, after a declaration to affirm it as certain or worthy of full acceptance. It's really used in the exact same way we use it today, right? Pastor says something you agree with. What do you say? And all God's people said? All right. Now, Jesus changed it around. He's using this expression before a declaration. Before the declaration he's about to make, he's using this expression. Truly, truly, I say to you, He's claiming that that what he's about to say to you is worthy of full acceptance and utterly certain. He is demanding that we take him seriously. He's saying that we don't need to filter out any statement that's about to come. So, what does he truly, truly have to say to us? He first says, You will see heaven opened. And Jesus is saying that that he is going to open heaven up to us. He's going to give us access, get us access into heaven, which is access into the presence of God. The God sin has separated us from. Jesus is saying, is heaven open to you and me? Now, now, when we when he says you there, okay, when he says you there, and the in the in the you will see heaven open, he's obviously speaking to Nathaniel. But there's something interesting here, okay? There's something really interesting here. The you in the English language can have a singular and a plural form, right? I can say you, go get up. Or I can say, all of you, right, you, and here, go, go get up and go do something, right? In English, you can have singular and plural form. However, in the Greek, there is no, like, context that you read into. There are explicit, there are explicit tenses that tell you whether it's singular or plural form, And that's what we see here in this passage. This, you will see heaven open to you. And the Greek here is plural. It's not singular. So what Jesus says here is not just for Nathaniel, but for everyone listening. It's for you and me today. It's for the whole world. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, You you will make heaven open up by your good works and your deservings. That's what every other religions leader says in some way, form, shape, or fashion. No, Jesus says heaven will be opened for you. I mean, think about it. Who else could say that to us with any kind of credibility at all. Would, would, would he take that seriously if it came from anyone else other than Jesus himself? Now he says, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, wait a minute. Angels? Angels ascending and descending on Jesus. Now, there's a backstory in the Old Testament to help shed some light on what he's talking about here. So so really quickly, turn with me back to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28. Now just follow along with me as I read These verses. Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. So he's in a dark place it is not comfortable. It is not a, a home. He, he's not at home snuggled up in his bed. He's lonely. He's in a strange place and he's never been, that. he's never been. And the best thing he can do is to drag over a rock for a pillow. Some of us are in that kind of place of darkness and discomfort i certain of it. Verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac, the land in which You lie, I will give you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And did not know, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Here's the main thing you need to know about Jacob. Jacob, his name. His Hebrew names. His Hebrew name means he cheats. That's literally what his name means. It means he, he cheats. He's a deceiver. And he, and he lives up to this name. He, he cheated his brother. He, he cheated his father. He was deceitful. He was dishonest. And why? Why? Because Jacob had so much contempt for God and so little confidence in God and so much confidence in himself. Looking out for himself was his number one priority in life. I mean, he's so much like us. I mean, really. You see, despite all that rebellion and selfishness, God had made a promise to bless him. And God purposed to make Jacob a blessing to the whole world, despite Jacob's deceit and selfishness. Now, here's this man. He's in trouble. Nothing about Jacob has changed. Absolutely nothing. And God comes and meets him in a new and different way. Now, Jacob wasn't seeking after God. He was taken by surprise. What was God saying to Jacob by this dream he gave him? God was communicating his grace to an undeserved man, even a sleeping man. But God is very awake and very involved and very active. What does God do? God, God doesn't dredge up Jacob's embarrassing past. He doesn't say, well, when you straighten, when you straighten that up a little bit, then, I, then, then we'll talk. He doesn't do that. What does he do? God opens up Jacob's eyes and shows him what's really going on. He's revealing a huge promise to the undeserving. Reaching down into his life, Jacob sees a ladder. Heaven has opened up and a ladder or or a staircase, depending on your translations, really unclear in the Hebrew of what that actually means. But the meaning is quite clear. The effect is quite clear. The staircase or, or, or ladder is touching down to earth. On this ladder, he sees angels coming up And down and at the top, he sees the Lord Himself. And above all else, pouring down blessing and promises on Jacob's sorry life. And in John 1, verse 51, Jesus is saying, I am the ladder. I am the ladder. And I am for you, raining down blessing and promises on our sorry lives. And Jacob starts feeling in his heart what what many of us are feeling in our hearts right now. How awesome is this place? There is a sense of all that comes upon us when we get to see Jesus for who he really is. And in closing, all of us need Jacob's ladder, because sin has separated us from the presence of God. Now this is the whole point of the Bible, the whole meta-narrative of Scripture. This was not plan B for God. This was plan A. This is His intended purpose. That in the fullness of time, God sent His one and only beloved Son to live a life that we could not live ourselves and to die a death that we totally deserve to die in our place in order to give us access back to God. And this ladder of heaven. It's not one that we climb ourselves. We can't do it. Rather, Jesus comes down to us. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Listen, encountering Jesus through faith, it changes everything. It changes everything. If you don't believe me, come and see.